hppodcraft.com. I'm ready. In my tortured ears, there sounds unceasingly a nightmare whirring and flapping and a faint, distant baying as of some gigantic hound. It is not dream. It is not, I fear, even madness. For too much has already happened to give me these merciful doubts. St. John is a mangled corpse. I alone know why. And such is my knowledge that I am about to blow out my brains for fear I shall be mangled in the same way. Down unlit and illimitable corridors of eldritch fantasy sweeps the black, shapeless nemesis that drives me to self-annihilation. You know what else is sweeping down unlit and illimitable corridors? This podcast. Yeah, woo! The second season has begun. I'm scared. I'm scared by that. You know, Chad. um, (laughs) Chad. Chad Pfeiffer. Pfeiffer. That's, That's who I am, folks. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm back. Yeah, you're back. And also, Chris Lackey's back. That's me. Yay! And we're back with the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. We're back. Yeah, <laughs> I agree with you, 100%. Uh, and that uh, reader uh, today is a, a fresh face uh, here, or voice, I should say, <laughs> on the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Anthony Tedesco, who is uh, a performer here in Los Angeles. Oh, he's fresh. He is fresh. Mm. <laughs> So we're doing The Hound. Did we say that? Yeah, no, we didn't say that. This week's story is The Hound. That was written in uh, 1922, but yeah. uh, it wasn't published until 24, I think, with yeah, Weird Tales. Yeah, so that's a pretty quick turnaround for It is a pretty HBO. quick turnaround. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's... And this is sort of a return to the uber-gothic ornateness of The Outsider oh, yes. or the statement of Randolph Carter. Um, and it follows the model of Randolph Carter, Herbert West, and that uh-huh. there's the protagonist, yeah. uh, unnamed in this one, mm-hmm. and then sort of the dominating partner who is yeah. St. John, who is referenced in the first paragraph. Right. Mm-hmm. And these guys, the, what we get from this is that what we're about to find out is that they're just bored. I mean, <laughs> well, they're just so bored, they can't, it's just ruined their lives, and so they're looking yeah. for any kind of thrills they can get. Which leads to a dangerous practice. Wearied with the commonplaces of a prosaic world, where even the joys of romance and adventure soon grow stale. St. John and I had followed enthusiastically every aesthetic and intellectual movement which promised respite from our devastating ennui. The enigmas of the symbolists and the ecstasies of the pre-Raphaelites all were ours in their time, but each new mood was drained too soon of its diverting novelty and appeal. Only the somber philosophy of the decadence could hold us, and this we found potent only by increasing gradually the depth and diabolism of our penetrations. Baudelaire and Wiesmal were soon exhausted of thrills, till finally there remained for us only the more direct stimuli of unnatural personal experiences and adventures. It was this frightful emotional need which led us eventually to that detestable course which, even in my present fear I mention with shame and timidity, that hideous extremity of human outrage, that abhorred practice of grave robbing. Wow. So these guys are so bored that the only thing that's giving them a thrill anymore Mm -hmm. is robbing graves. Right. And you know what? I would have to say that thanks to snowboarding, grave robbing has gone way down. It's true. Yeah. Because it's in a, you know, in an extreme sport. Yeah. No, I read all about that in yeah. the X Games, you know. <laughs> Thanks to X Games, yeah. there is like 150% less grave robbing that goes on nowadays. If only they'd had that snowboarding. In the yeah, summer. those guys, would, that's what they'd be doing. They'd be out snowboarding. No hound. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, well, you know, well, I have to say that um, rereading this several weeks ago, which I did, mm-hmm. uh, I began to feel that there was 
a sort of homosexual vibe to this piece. Maybe more so than other works. Yeah. I mean, it's there in Hypnos. It's in a few of the stories. I don't know. I just wanted to talk about it. I saw it came up on the message boards. It did. I think when we did Hypnos. Yeah, we did Hypnos. I mean, yeah. There, there can be an argument made. I'm again, neither neither Chad nor myself are uh, psychologists. Yeah. Well, nor would I endeavor to. I mean, I always try to be very careful to make judgments about an, an author based on what they write, right? Because it's fiction, right? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, it doesn't. This question doesn't even matter. But no. he does. Well, okay. First of all, there's obvious unintentional things in that last paragraph that we heard, like the depth and diabolism of our penetrations. Yes. <laughs> you know. Or, yeah, uh, yeah. Unnatural personal experiences and adventures. Maybe they're metaphors. Right. Or, and that, the argument has been made by you mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> that that this is a very common thing that happens in, in Lovecraft's writings. He's got a protagonist, or the, the, the narrator of the story is hanging out with another man, and they're doing secret stuff yeah. away from everybody else, right. off together. One is, uh, the narrator is usually the submissive, and mm-hmm. the, the other person is the more domineering personality. It's the same with Herbert West, same with Randall Carter. Right. Same uh, with Hypnos. Yeah. That yeah. there's, and then in this, and then the Hound. Yeah. Um, and it's that they spend these long periods of time together in isolation. Yeah. They, there's no mention of other relationships. Yeah. Family or, or love interests or anything like that. No. So, I mean, I don't think it's absurd to ask the question. Oh, no, not at <laughs> that all. There's some kind of implied. You know, gay relationship. Lovecraft said that the idea of homosexuality didn't even occur to him until he was like in his his, yeah. his mid twenties, which could just him saying stuff, you right? Know, yeah, just to throw people off if he was gay. Yeah, uh, but maybe. Well, in his defense, I used to listen to the Village People. I had no idea they were. No, gay. of course not. I was very little. Though. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I watched the Village People. Frankie goes to Hollywood. You <laughs> yeah. know, no idea. No idea. Great, great musicians. Yeah, there's some good yeah. stuff. The uh, <laughs> and if Lovecraft was gay he was probably just totally repressed like yeah i mean i don't it's very possible because it was so not even an option at that time that he just suppressed any feelings that he may have had if he was right and i and and i guess what leads me to that too when i read this is if he felt that way i'm sure that he would feel that it was forbidden and diabolic and unnatural right if he had those desires and so something as despicable as grave robbing or being obsessed with the dead perhaps it's something that a self-hating repressed person you know might feel yeah it's possible and that's where i'm gonna end that psychology (laughs) because because i read it and it's about grave robbing and i don't assume that lovecraft robbed graves either no of course not and also it but it's it's, end of the day it is interesting i mean this is something that um you and i have spoken about a lot and on the other end of it i mean there's something to it like Mm -hmm. it this just wouldn't come up as often as it does if there wasn't Mm -hmm. something to it I think on the other end of this, it may be that Lovecraft just never really had any close male friends. Right. And somebody made that point on the message boards, and I think, well, if I I was going to make an assessment. Julie of 19 Nocturne Boulevard Mm. was the one who said, you know, it's like when you're a kid, you have these really close uh, friendships, you know, like where you go out on adventures together, you like, you know, you you have sleepovers, you do all this Mm -hmm. stuff. Not sexual, nothing sexual about it. But Lovecraft, the way he grew up, kind of alone and away from people, he never had that really close male bond right. with anybody. So all of these could just be that. Yeah, you know, like, like him just imagining a friendship. Now, I mean, and he got married and he had relationships with women and he had lots of correspondences with other guys, but perhaps he, he just always thought, oh man, I really wish I just had somebody I was really close to who shared my interests. Right, yeah. You know, and it could just be as simple as that. Yeah. Or he always felt that it was a convenient device to have Two guys, one to narrate and one to do the bad stuff. Right. <laughs> you know? Right, yeah. 
another thing that this story made me think of was about Leopold and Loeb, the murderers. Right. Now, they didn't commit those murders. Actually, I think they did it in, in 1924. 24. So he wrote this before that, but yeah. wait a minute, maybe they read the story and they were. <laughs> if, if, I mean, that's a very famous case, but Leopold and Loeb were these college students who sort of were motivated by some of the same things as the protagonists in this story. They were bored with life, uh-huh. they wanted a thrill, and so they constructed the perfect murder of a friend of theirs yeah. to sort of get that thrill of the kill. Right. And they, they killed him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, th- I think they bludgeoned him to death and then burned his body with acid and, and uh, made a couple of mistakes that had them found out. And they, they took on uh, Clarence Darrow as their... Yes, Clarence Darrow of the Skokes Monkey Trial. That's right. And there's been a couple... Of, Rope was a play that was then... That was yeah. written about them that was then adapted by Alfred Hitchcock, which I really movie. like and, yeah, yeah. and really reminds me of, of this. In yeah. fact, uh, one of them died in prison. I read about it today because I didn't really know what ever happened to these guys. Well, Darrow did an excellent job. He got them life imprisonment instead of... Been, being put to death his argument being that look in college they taught all these guys about nietzsche and the super man oh man <laughs> and all they did was just take it way too far so are they to blame i mean really crazy i mean right. but he did a great job and yeah. he managed to get these guys life imprisonment and leopold actually he got out in the 50s oh really on bail and he moved to puerto rico where he worked in a lab for the rest of his life he died in the 70s not on bail he got out on parole he got out on parole that yeah. would be the correct <laughs> correct word but yeah so he he actually got out of jail at one point Wow. Loeb got killed in the in prison. By do you, but do you inmate. remember? Uh, I think it was with you. We went to that museum of death. Yeah, uh, this in San definitely Diego. made me feel uh, think of the museum of death. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There was this one where it was really gruesome murder of it was a woman and her boyfriend killed her husband. Uh-huh. And they and they took all of these pictures. Yeah. Of them doing you know chopping up the body and them posing with his body parts in really degrading and humiliating ways and then they took that film to like kmart to get it developed exactly and (laughs) they called the cops and you know but what this what this reminds me of is when we were there the the woman who Mm -hmm. who didn't actually kill him right you know the, the her boyfriend killed him she was just part of the murder. She was out of jail by the time we were already uh, right. at the, you know, because it said she was released and he's going to be released like 10 years from now. Yeah, that exhibit I remember so well because the heading over it said, welcome to the shallow end of the gene pool. <laughs> and then it was just the entire roll of film of those people who and what they did with this corpse yes. of, of the husband. It was really horrifying. Uh, that, I think, is up on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles now, the Museum of Death. Oh, is it? Yeah. But when we went, it was... Maybe. It was in San Diego. It was in San Diego. Right. And uh, and this is a good lead into our next paragraph because the thing about it that was so interesting about the Museum of Death was that it was in this basement in the gas lamp district. Uh-huh. And so you had to go down these stairs and then each room had different sort of death-related exhibits. There were like babies' coffins and, right. and then they had faces of death on a loop and one thing. And then they had the room that where they corresponded with serial killers and all their letters. Right. And you just really got this feeling of revulsion. Right, yeah crime scene photos everywhere that when you left the basement and you got to the surface you're like thank god i'm alive right you know it's similar to what these guys do i cannot reveal the details of our shocking expeditions or catalog even partly the worst of the trophies adorning the nameless museum we prepared in the great stone house where we jointly dwelt alone and servantless our museum was a blasphemous unthinkable place where with the satanic taste of neurotic virtuosi we had assembled an universe of terror and decay to excite our jaded sensibilities. It was a secret room, far, far underground, where huge winged demons carven of basalt and onyx vomited from wide, grinning mouths weird green and orange light, and hidden pneumatic pipes ruffled into kaleidoscopic dances of death 
the lines of red carnal things hand in hand, woven in voluminous black hangings. Through these pipes came at will the odors our moods most craved. Sometimes the scent of pale funeral lilies, sometimes the narcotic incense of imagined eastern shrines of the kingly dead, and sometimes, oh, how I shudder to recall it, the frightful, soul-upheaving stenches of the uncovered grave. Yeah. So he had the, the the guys had their own little museum down there. Yeah, and I mean they really did because they have smellovision. Yeah, <laughs> lots know, of really getting piped in. Uh huh. Well, they're very aesthetically based, which is interesting. So these guys, they they're bored by everything. They have on we. They like robbing graves, but it's very important that the scene is great. Like when they rob yes. the graves, fact, the weather's got to be just right. Yeah. The the moonlight has to be just right. Right. Uh, it says the predatory excursions on which we collected our unmentionable treasures were always artistically memorable events. We were no vulgar ghouls, but worked only under certain conditions of mood, landscape, environment, weather, season, and moonlight. Very um, meticulous. I hate to say it, but they were artists in a sense. Like They wanted to have this experience, and they wanted it to be just a very specific way. It's impressive to say, look, if I'm going to make a memory... I want it to be really good. <laughs> yeah. This is going to be a notable thing that I do, and it's repulsive, and I want to make sure that it's just right. I mean, typically people don't even, you know, I would only say for special occasions, like a wedding. Mm-hmm. Huh? Mm-hmm. Huh? Huh? For, for the listeners, I've just, I'm recently, <laughs> I'm recently wed. That's why uh, we had our season break is because yeah. uh, I'm... Uh, he was off honeymooning. And well and married. I got married before. Honeymoon bogging. And Chad was with, with me in the he was my best man in the wedding and what, what the honeymoon brings. And he was not <laughs> <laughs> But of course not on the honeymoon. It was yeah, no, it wedding. was a great wedding, by the way, and, and it was uh it was really wonderful. And yeah, it was it was twenty style and it but it didn't have this any of this debauchery no, or, uh, uh, no. diabolism involved. A- Andrew Liebman, who reads for us, mm-hmm. uh was at the wedding and he yeah. he, he came up to me and said, because we're all dressed very period, he goes, uh I'm just waiting for for the scream, you know, the blood curdling <laughs> scream to happen. Uh, yeah. But but as I was saying, uh-huh. you know, uh, taking the time to anticipate a memory, you know, like mm-hmm. I want this to be perfect, this perfect lighting. I want it, the music to be perfect. I want all these things to be perfect because I want a beautiful memory. And that's what these guys are doing, except they're doing it with really effed up stuff right (laughs) so this draws us well the the protagonist asks himself this question he says but what malign fatality were we lured to that terrible holland churchyard i think it was the dark rumor of legendary that tales of one buried for five centuries who had himself been a ghoul in his time and had stolen a potent thing from a mighty sepulcher yeah so this guy that they want to grave rob the grave of he himself was a grave robber. Yeah. So they're like, hey, this is this is the the Uber grave robbing. You know, mm-hmm. like we're gonna make this happen by stealing from a guy who stole from a really ancient grave. <laughs> right. This awesome thing, this amulet. And it, it sort of reminded me of, of Randolph Carter, same in Randolph Carter a bit that there's this, you know, sorcerer in the yeah. ground who's maybe, you know, not decayed as much as he should. Right. That, uh-huh. that sort of thing. Uh-huh. Um and I love when he recalls the scene in which they dig the guy up. <clears throat> you really have to just read this yourselves to get the the hilarity of it. Uh, he goes through this almost 12 days of Christmas description of it. There's, and it's, it's amazing. He said there's the moon over the graves, the f- grotesque trees, the legions of colossal bats, uh-huh. the antique ivy church, the phosphorescent insects, the odors of vegetation. Right. Each one of these uh, clauses in the sentence has even more detail in it. Yeah. And then, you know, he repeats this list a few times in the story every time he talks about revisiting this right. grave and digging uh-huh. it up, which I think lends itself to this theory that Joshi put forth in yeah. this mm-hmm. annotation that it's to an extent this is self-parody 
Yeah. I and mean, he's kind of being overblown on purpose. It's, I mean, it really does seem like it is a self-parody. Um, however, Lovecraft didn't like this story. Uh, he said, what did he, he called it a dead dog and a piece of junk later on in his career. <laughs> uh, well, so, you know, maybe he was pretty serious about it. And then... he might, yeah, he maybe was serious, but I mean, it seems like, I mean, there's so obviously post stuff in this, like, right, right. you know, like, you know, later on in the story, he talks about a gentle, uh, tapping, rapping at my door, mm-hmm. you know, and there's, uh, the oblong box. Red Death, yeah. you know, brought on by the Hound. Like he's really he's being his, obvious it's about one of his post stories. Yeah, but he's being really obvious about it True. to the point that it it seems like it is a joke. And mm-hmm. Joshi might be right about that. And maybe Lovecraft just later on just didn't like his joke and just <laughs> right. And you know, people were just like nobody got that it was a yeah, joke. Nobody got that it was funny. Maybe so that's maybe that's why he didn't like it. The last thing on the list of things that he experiences when he's out there in the graveyard, the partridge in the pear tree, so to speak, is. Uh, Worst of all, the faint, deep-toned baying of some gigantic hound which we could neither see nor definitely place. As we heard the suggestion of baying, we shuddered, remembering the tales of the peasantry. For he whom we sought had centuries before been found in this self-same spot, torn and mangled by the claws and teeth of some unspeakable beast. Yeah. Now, that confuses me. He got killed right in the same spot where he's buried. I, that's what I got out of it. So was he ripping? Was that the sorcerer that he ripped off? Then was that was he grave robbing? Oh right no there? no no! I think uh, he got it from someplace else. But I think that was just the place that he died. Oh, okay. I don't think that was the original place of it. When they open the coffin, they find the body. In oh yes, yeah. Right, it's got an amulet around. It's it. got an amulet. The body has an amulet yeah. around it, and then it's, it's it's kind of a, you know it's a corpse. It's kind of a mm. white gray, your typical corpse fare. Yeah. It has well. It's uh, it's been crushed by giant jaws, right? Something and killed it. Yes. Um, but around the neck of the corpse of this the skeleton, that's where they find that necklace, which they steal. Right. But the amulet uh, has got a kind of a, a a dog with wings sort of creature on it. Uh, when its description, they talk about it having like uh, it seems could be a sphinx, but with like a, a dog's jaws on it. And, you know, before we go on, we were, t- we're talking about these imitations. I mean, clearly he had read The Hound of the Baskervilles. Right. Yeah. Uh, which came out in, I don't know, like 1902, 03, 04. Yeah. Um, which has a giant hound stalking the moors. Yes. <laughs> you know, and I think it's because, uh, it's been a long time since I've read that book, but it's the reason the hound is on the moors is because of some satanic misdoings of a person centuries ago on this family line right well that's the the legend i mean you find that, out well, yeah, yeah you find out but that, that's, that's the legend so i right. mean mm-hmm. in a way it might not be self-parody this is almost like straight up parody in a, way, yeah. in a certain respect so anyway they they find the uh body they see the corpse it's fresher than they would have thought it's got this amulet and the amulet has this sort of uh, it's almost carved in an oriental fashion and it's jade and it's got some inscription and characters that they can't identify, mm-hmm. and uh, it's got that skull. They know they have to have that. Oh yeah! So they just it's it awesome. Off. Yeah, yeah. Immediately, They're like boom. Yeah, but okay. there's another reason that they stole this thing from the body. It's because uh, we recognized it as the thing hinted of in the forbidden Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul Al Hazred, the ghastly soul symbol of the corpse-eating cult of inaccessible Lang in Central Asia. All too well did we trace the sinister lineaments described by the old Arab demonologist. Lineaments, he wrote, drawn from some obscure supernatural manifestation of the souls of those who vexed and gnawed at the dead. Yeah. So that is the first mention by H.P. Lovecraft of the Necronomicon. Right. 
It's the first time we hear about it. It's that second mention of of good old Abdul Al Hazred. I right. can't. Why can't I say Abdul that? Abdul Al Hazred was mentioned before in the Nameless City, and and there have been some some references to what may have been the Necronomicon, but this is the first time it's actually named. Right. It's something that people own and they can reference. Right. Yeah. Here it is. And yep. that, that. So I mean, we've talked about the Necronomicon before, but oh yeah. But it is the the premiere. I mean, what's the, significant about that? The, well, it gets used in a lot of other stories right. uh, that are coming up, and. And it is, I mean, not only used in other stories, but other writers and filmmakers. And, I mean, it's, I would have to say, probably the most used Lovecraft invention in right. film and literature and music. Yeah, definitely. So, boom. This is, this is go, right the genesis here. of it right there. So they grab that amulet, which they heard <laughs> of in the Necronomicon. Uh, oh, wait, you know what? Before before we move on, though, they uh, something else in here. Lang, he says... Um, right, the Plateau of Lang is yeah. uh, mentioned in Salafaeus. Right. Not sure exactly where uh, it's placed in Central Asia here. Yeah. Uh, but they also reference it in the Dreamlands as well. Right. And also in Antarctica. Right. So not exactly sure what's up just with one. So they grab that Necronomicon amulet and they, they take off for home from Holland. And they think they hear that hound baying, you know, as yeah. they go. And from there we move into the second movement in the story. Or maybe chapter. I don't know. A, there's a two before it. Yeah. Uh, and that starts with an excellent sentence. Less than a week after our return to England, strange things began to happen. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's like the simplest uh, sense of the whole thing. I love it. I mean, that's a pretty accurate description. They start, there's bumps in the night. Yep. They see shadows at the windows. Uh-huh. Um, they hear the bang. They hear the bang it's, occasionally. It gets get closer and closer. I mean, it may be because they're basically worshipping at the amulet. They put it down in their uh, little basement, and they're doing rites around it and burning incense to it. They right. kind of build mm-hmm. a little shrine around it. And the reading in the Necronomicon. I don't know how they got a copy of this thing, but yeah, well, I'm probably uh, Robin Graves. You know, a lot of a lot of uh, right. sorcerers are buried with the Necronomicon. Yeah, yeah. If I was a sorcerer, you know, yeah, you're not going to leave that out. No, no, and <laughs> you're not going to take like the wind in the willows with you. You want <laughs> you want the Necronomicon. It'll be useful. Well, so they're they're hearing bumps in the night, and then that same opening paragraph it also ends with a great sentence. Then terror came. <laughs> the enteric. Excellent. That's yeah. It's uh, short and to the point. So basically, one night our protagonist he hears a knock on his chamber door. Yeah. Rap 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 rap. And uh, then only he he asks who it is. He assumes it's Saint John, and then he only hears this little shrill laugh. And uh, he opens it up. Saint John's not there. So he goes and he gets him. And the two are kind of marching around their house, trying to figure out where the laughter. Yeah, where it's coming from. I mean, they live way out in the middle of nowhere. This yeah, they have no servants. They They have you know, they live totally by themselves. Just those two fellas, Um, but they are as much afraid of the police as they are of any hounds. Right, because they've been doing illegal stuff for years, and they have a basement full of evidence. Uh, But anyway, the knock on the door bothers them. Right, because just the other night when they were down in their spooky hidden basement, they had heard a low scratching. Right at the door. Mm -hmm. When they went to the door and threw it open, they didn't see anything there but they they hear a little laughter and some articulate chatter Uh uh-huh which is in the dutch language (laughs) yeah that's uh one of the best italicized uh kenneth kenneth uh height mentions in his book too that this is (laughs) the the only time that the words in the dutch language are used to invoke fear (laughs) (laughs) Dutch language. Which, of course, is where they found the body. Right, right. You know, so that's why they're... Because now they're they're back in England, where, yes. which is where they're from. Right. They start seeing little footprints, unidentifiable, maybe non-human footprints under the library windows. 
And, you know, they assume they're going mad from studying dead stuff and right. robbing graves. But in a way, they almost say, well, wouldn't it also be fun if a giant specter was stalking us? You're like, we expected anything about that. <laughs> well, they've gotten some, uh, you know, they wanted a little bit of excitement I in their lives. This is and the charge they're looking for. This is yeah. what they're, they, you know, they want. The horror reached a culmination on November the 18th when St. John, walking home after dark from a distant railway station, was seized by some frightful carnivorous thing and torn to ribbons. His screams had reached the house and I had hastened to the terrible scene in time to hear the whir of wings and see a vague black cloudy thing silhouetted against the rising moon. My friend was dying as I spoke to him and he could not answer coherently. All he could do was to whisper, like, the amulet, that damned thing. And then he collapsed, an inert mass of mangled flesh. Oof. Wow. Not good. That is brutal. Yeah. That just happened. <laughs> and our protagonist, you know, he hears the, uh, he buries his friend. Yeah. In one of their neglected gardens. Uh huh. Staying. And as he's doing it, he, he hears that hound getting closer. In fact, I think he throws himself down on the ground and just stays there yep. for hours. Well, obviously, he can't be alone in their place. So he destroys the basement. Yep. He gets rid of all their artifacts. Facts and treasures. He just burns it, and burns then it. he moves down to London. Yeah, throws out the foosball table, and, and <laughs> he's back in London. And uh, he feels he's being stalked there as well. Yeah. He decides. Well, you know what I have to do is I got to take this uh, this amulet back to Holland. Back in the body. Back. Yeah. Back to the corpse. Back. You know, just be done with it. Yeah. Return. Unrightful owner, but at least the last guy. Yeah. Had it. <laughs> he doesn't want anything to yeah. do with it anymore. But on his way, uh, when he gets into Holland, yeah, uh, some dudes rob him and and steal his flipping amulet. No amulet. No, and so he's just like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, that's, you know, I guess it's not my problem anymore, but he's... But it is his problem. It is his problem. Yeah, because that night he hears the bang really loud. And when he wakes up, uh, the incredibly prompt Lovecraft newspaper is there to greet him. Uh, And it tells him that a thing had torn to shreds an entire family that was living in this tenement, you know, building. A thieves' den. Right. Since it's a thieves' den, we can assume those were the thieves that had robbed him of the amulet. Right. They got their just desserts. It's also not good. So finally, he goes back to the grave. He digs it up. He fights off a vulture. I think in, uh, during that. Yeah, scene. there was a vulture that starts picking at the ground where yeah. he's going to dig, and then he just beats the kills the vulture. Yeah. He just kills it. Like I Again, mean, why is the bird in here if it's not going to talk? I. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so he says he removes the. He, he digs. He digs. He beats off the vulture, and then he gets to the box and he throws open the lid, and, and he says, uh, "This is the last rational thing he's done." For crouched within that centuried coffin, embraced by a close-packed nightmare retinue of huge, sinewy sleeping bats, was the bony thing my friend and I had robbed. Not clean and placid as we had seen it then, but covered with caked blood and shreds of alien flesh and hair, and leering sentiently at me with phosphorescent sockets and sharp and sanguine fangs, yawning twistedly in mockery of my inevitable doom. And when it gave from those grinning jaws a deep, sardonic bay as of some gigantic hound, and I saw that it held in its gory, filthy claw the lost and fateful amulet of green jade, and merely screamed and ran away idiotically, (laughs) my screams soon dissolving into peals of hysterical laughter. (laughs) Whoa. It had phosphorescent sockets. It had glowing yeah. eyes. And the skull had howled. <laughs> <laughs> it's so crazy. It's awesome. <laughs> so crazy. I thought 
it, it's a great surprise that he opens the grave and it got the amulet back. Yeah. Cool, but then it howls and just really yeah. I didn't expect And it's got that. glowing eyes, man. That's crazy. <laughs> that's some like that's some yeah. brutal heavy metal, you know, Absolutely. album cover yeah, stuff man. right there. You well know? somehow in some form this thing had risen out of the grave and gotten its amulet. Yeah. Wow. Or it is the hound, or the guy's the hound. You yeah. know, like that's he's somehow some kind of undead thing now. Well, you know, yeah, like he I, did necromantic studies and now he's become some sort of like a, I think a lich is what uh, Ken Height refers to it as, which is like an undead sorcerer, basically, yeah. you know. So, And I think that, the, that some people say that this leads to the ghoul mythology within Lovecraft because ghouls are described as being kind of dog-like. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's definitely the, the beginning of it. Uh, yeah. Later on, and we get you know better ghoul descriptions right, and, right. And, and other stories. But Anyway, except- well, well, he concludes by saying, Madness rides the star wind. Claws and teeth sharpened on centuries of corpses, dripping death astride a bacchanal of bats from night-black ruins of buried temples of Belial. Now, as the bang of that dead, fleshless monstrosity grows louder and louder, and the stealthy whirring and flapping of those accursed web wings circles closer and closer... I shall seek with my revolver the oblivion which is my only refuge from the unnamed and unnameable. Woof. Bang. That is the end. It's a suicide note. Heck of a suicide note. Yeah. So uh, there we go. That's uh, that's uh, the Hound is. Uh, I like the Hound. Uh, I, I I missed I missed that it was uh, comical. When, yeah. I, when I first read it, and it wasn't until I started doing uh, research and and rereading the story that I realized that. That it was definitely overtly Poe and, mm-hmm. you know, like, even with the lines and things being in there. And with that, I think, yeah, maybe Lovecraft was trying to be funny with it. And it was just too sophisticated. <laughs> For me. Because I me. didn't know. <laughs> I, had I, no I had no idea. idea. It's not what I, I mean, when I read it, I thought, well, wow, he's really overdoing this. But I, I mean, but I liked it. Yeah, no, I like it too. I think this is a cool story. It's it's tight. It's interesting. You know, a lot happens. He doesn't get too lost in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love I love the hound. And it's based in in a real perversity. Yeah, and that that's present in Herbert West, I suppose. All of the screwed up things that they're doing. I don't know. There's something about this, and that there's no science driving what they're doing. No, with Herbert West, they were trying to get knowledge and an understanding. Mm-hmm. With this, they're just looking for kicks. Right, right. And he references the decadence. Um, like Baudelaire and these guys who, oh right, uh, yeah, who Lovecraft was a, a devotee of Baudelaire and and oh yeah, pos- you know possibly and, and I, I know that a lot of people have written about how the Hound is um, you know echoes a lot of the decadent s- sentiments right, which led to symbolism, which is that you know the we should be writing about the world and experiencing the world as as it really is yeah, and that artists should be able to sort of debase themselves in a sort of spiritual quest looking for. You know, morality shouldn't exist for the for the artist. Right. That's what these. I mean, these guys are doing things that are morally and traditionally culturally wrong, but they're seeking some kind of learning, I suppose. Yeah, and and I mean, they are trying to make it perfect in their own screwed up way. Yeah. So I mean, you know that. I wouldn't say it's um, uh, redeeming in any way, uh, no. but it makes me think of in, in films. You know, where the serial killer is usually this really sophisticated, intelligent <laughs> right. person, and they've you know they've their murder is some kind of art form to them, and so they've got a. a but in the reality of it, though, those people aren't. You know, they're just crazy, and yeah. they've got problems, and right. they're not as clever and as interesting as you know they're yeah. made out to be. In not at all. And stuff. No. Not at all. If you're interested in Malame or Baudelaire or you know 
people who actually were translating Poe in, in France, I think mm-hmm. that there's a lot of literary continuity between this story and, and that stuff. Mm-hmm. I have to admit, I'm not that interested in it, so I didn't really want to cover it too much on yeah, here. To I, me, it's, I read over it. And... Yeah. I mean, the story, as I, I like to take the story on its own terms, and I know that Lovecraft is throwing these references in there yeah. to Bottle Air, et cetera, because he wants to. He wants the reader to possibly check into that stuff a little bit more. Yeah, right. So I think so. You should, but um, but on its face value, the story, I like it. Yeah, I think it's a cool, creepy story. Just yeah. you know, forget about all the the layers that uh, Lovecraft obviously put into it. It's just on the surface, it's really cool. And then if you want to dig, you can find yeah. lots more great stuff. So I say, yay, Hound. That's the end of uh, this this week's podcast. Next yeah. week we are um, doing another H.P. Lovecraft story, The Lurking Fear. That's by Lovecraft. It <laughs> is. <laughs> Yay. Lurking Fear. And then I think after that we've got The Rats in the Walls coming up We as well. have The Rats in the Walls. Yeah. And, and I believe we have a, we'll have a guest host for Rats in the Walls. Oh, excellent. And uh, we'll keep it a secret until I'm... I confirm with uh, said guest host to make sure that that's going to happen. Well, I'm glad to be back. I am glad to be back. I missed uh, doing this, yeah. uh, casketing together with uh, with you, Chad, every week and talking about some sweet ass Lovecraft, and uh, and hopefully everybody else is glad that we're back too. <laughs> I hope so. oh, oh, one of the things I forgot to mention uh, is we are out of the CDs, the music of the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast Volume One. Okay. So if you donate, uh, unfortunately, you won't get a CD. Okay. Uh, but please still donate because um, we are actually having to move servers uh, because our old host can't provide for us because we are so wildly popular now. Yay! Uh, which is great, but unfortunately it costs us money because yeah. our bandwidth is crazy high now. So, um, yeah, we're gonna so we're going to, yeah, we're working on that. So there might be some website issues if... Things freak out. We'll let you know if we're having to move stuff over and there's an address problem or whatever. And we'll we'll get uh, some new... We're going to have a new promotion coming up soon. Oh, yes. Very soon. In the next uh, week or two, we will announce it. So. Yeah. And uh, with that, I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. HPPodcraft.com. Oh, it's scary, isn't it?